This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 29th of July 2023. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a leaf through the papers with Paul Rhodes, who's deputy publishing editor at Newsweek. Then, a guide to the delicate art of navigating an Italian beach club. The right level of involvement, or perhaps ignoring, of your umbrella neighbours is an art that's perfected over the years. Too much conversation, and you'll come off as nosy. Not enough, and you'll be branded as conceited. More from Chiara Romella a little bit later on. First, though, here's the news. Leaders of a coup in Niger declared General Abdurrahmani Tiani as the new head of state on Friday, days after saying they'd ousted President Mohamed Bazoum in the seventh military takeover in West and Central Africa in less than three years. Before the uprising, Niger was seen as the West's most stable ally in an unstable region. France, Germany, Italy and the United States have troops in Niger on military training and counter-insurgency missions. Ukrainian soldiers were observed using North Korean rockets that they said were seized by a friendly country before being delivered to Ukraine, the Financial Times reports. Ukraine's defence ministry suggested the arms were captured from the Russians. The United States has accused North Korea of providing arms to Russia, including alleged shipments by sea. Republican presidential rivals Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis appeared at the same event in the 2024 White House race for the first time on Friday. But even a day after Trump faced fresh criminal charges, it was the former president talking down DeSantis rather than the other way round. Trump has been indicted twice this year, but his lead has grown stronger as it plays into his central argument that he's the victim of a runaway Justice Department. And a street artist in Portugal has broken into a Lisbon venue where Pope Francis will celebrate a mass next week and rolled out a huge carpet of oversized banknotes to criticise how much the state has spent on the event. Francis will travel to Lisbon from August the 2nd to the 6th to attend World Youth Day, the global gathering of young Catholics, which is expected to bring together hundreds of thousands of pilgrims. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and I'm joined in the studio by Paul Rhodes, who is the Deputy Publishing Editor of Newsweek. Did I get that right? That is correct. Thank you. <laughs> what is that, though? Um, well, I, I work as part of the standards team and we kind of look to maintain our editorial standards across the, uh, across the site and and in our magazine. And we mainly, well, I mainly work online and we work to try and present a very a fair and balanced view of the news to our readers so they can make up their own minds. Absolutely. Paul, you're from Canada? I am. I'm uh, from Vancouver originally, but I'm, I'm part of the Newsweek um, UK contingent out here in London. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your background. Um, well, where to start? No, I guess I, guess I was, because um, I'm, uh, my mum my is English, so I've got, I'm very fortunate to have dual citizenship. And when I was younger, I wanted to travel and I ended up coming over to 
to Britain and, and uh, worked in Scotland for a while, worked on The Scotsman before moving down to London and working on various national newspapers here and, and have ended up at uh, Newsweek a little while ago. And yeah, I've just been I've been here for for quite for about twenty years now. So, but you know, loving loving it in London and and really enjoy being here. So, you've contributed to a couple of our programs recently. You're 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 pretty new on our on our contributor roster. It's the first time you've done this show, uh, and in fact, this came about because we met at a barbecue. <laughs> we did. <laughs> it was a good yeah. It was, it was it was a good barbecue to go to in the end. There was good food and a good conversation and. And, and obviously good networking as well. So. <laughs> uh, so it was a barbecue for the author and climate activist and uh, CEO or chief existential officer, as he calls himself, mm. of Climate Clock. That's the big clock that we see. There's one in New York, but there's various ones all over the world. So counting down, really. Um, his name's Andrew Boyd, and his new book is called I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope and Gallows Humour. Uh, and in fact, there's an interview with him going out on Meet the Writers tomorrow um and he's he's very funny isn't he but but uh, you know he, he he talks about well this existential crisis and asks the questions and just says you know you can still have hope though yes this the world is burning but that there is some hope there well, i definitely do um hope there is hope um I, I would like to think so but yeah he's he's a very charismatic and very um good storyteller so it'll be a must listen tomorrow certainly yeah so of course the the ft picks up on on the, the various climate crises we're seeing around the world but also looking at uh, airlines and how um uh, iag is doing extremely well Yes, um, the British Airways owner IAG reported record um, um, profits this week, and they said that you know customers are prioritizing holidays, and and they're not the only people. Um, Air France KLM said that high rollers are filling their business class. Um, um, lounges and um, sections of the plane and uh, Americans are also coming to Europe quite a lot um, in United Airlines so there's 42% rise in their revenue on flights to Europe and Delta said there's been a 65% surge for them on transatlantic flights and even in cruises as well which are, you know, they just seem to be the oil tankers with E. coli. Um, uh, but they are going full steam ahead. Uh, Royal Caribbean says it's exceptionally strong demand um, for them as well. But this is all, I, I guess it's, um, when they, there was a story earlier this week that um, in the UK, 8% of our uh, climate emissions come from flights. And and this is despite, you know, 50% of the population not flying at all during a year. So it is it is quite a lot. So there should be some, we should be tinged with a bit of guilt, I suppose, as we jet off on our summer holidays to places such as Rhodes and Sicily, which have seen terrible wildfires in the past um, few weeks. Absolutely. And we were also looking at the figures in, in the US. I mean, it's a very small amount of people who fly, but they fly a lot. That, that is is one of the issues with flying is the frequent flyers and I know, know a lot of you know businesses are trying to minimize that by you know zoom calls I guess there's a there's a cost element to that as well because that's one of the things that the airlines have been saying that you know because there's such a high demand the prices have gone up a lot and um, so people but people are spending money they're prioritizing this especially after coming out of lockdown where people weren't going anywhere people I guess that had trips planned or, you know, or taking them now or have money saved or spending it now on these, you know, possibly once in a lifetime trips. Mm, I mean, because we're now seeing that 
because of this spending, the US is likely to avoid a, a recession. Yeah, the the IMF this week, um, um, you, you know, um, raised its forecasts on 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 the global economy and saying that it is doing better and it is these resilient consumers, as they were called, that are, you know, spending spending us forward and better. Um, but of course, this is contributing a bit to the inflation crisis that we've seen. And I think they they say that things could probably slow down by the end of the year because there's a bit of a lag between when the interest rates have gone up and the when they start to bite and they will start to cool inflation and possibly the economy, but hopefully avoiding recession for mm. everyone. Uh, and people may not fly quite so much uh, in the future because there's a new uh, rival to Eurostar being mooted. Yes, there is, it was um, the National Express owner is in his consortium that is um, hoping to start by 2025 a new um, Paris to London train. It's called Evolin. And um, so, so hopefully, because rail travel is ten, it causes ten times less emissions than flying. So, and we've seen a, a huge jump in in rail travel around Europe. There's that new night jet train from, I think, Brussels and Amsterdam all the way to Vienna, and there's many more like that mooted. So. And and the French have also made that law where you, if you can take a train there in two and a half hours, you can't fly anymore. Mm. So I think rail travel will become more normalized, and it would be great. It's good to know that we could we can get to Le Sainte for lunch in Paris on a, on a and feel guilt free about it. Yeah, Georgina. Uh, absolutely. Um, but of course, trains are still. I mean, they're they're much more expensive than flying most of the time. Um, I, I guess it's when you book. It's also I think it's trains in Britain are much more expensive than flying. I think once you get over to the continent, they can, and if you, especially if you book in advance, they can be cheaper and faster. Mm. Well, speaking of energy, I mean, we're, we're seeing that there are fresh threats to Europe's energy supply. Instabilities mounting across the Sahel region. We've seen uh, the, this coup in Niger that we're reporting in our... In our headlines, Russia's presence could disrupt the Trans-Siberian gas pipeline. That's planned to run from Nigeria through Niger to Europe. Uh, and uh, it's part of the, the strategy to diversify Europe's gas supplies away from Russia. But of course, everything's just blown up in, in Niger this week. Uh, tell, us, tell us more about that. That's making the front pages on, on, many, on many papers. Yes, uh, definitely. Um, it, it's, uh, well, uh, late last night, um, Secretary of State um, Antony Blinken um, said that the U.S. is offering unflagging support to the ousted um, uh, president Bazoum, um, and they will they will want to see um, a, res- a restoration of him and of um, greater stability. Um, uh, Takini, Tiani, pardon me if I'm getting his name correct. Um, he is. He's, he said that the coup was in response to a degradation of security situation in in the area, and uh, and like you're saying as well, there's also a, a French nuclear company that operates um, Orana, which operates uranium mines in the northern area of Niger, which is is prone to security threats. And, and obviously, that will be something that, you know, the Americans and everyone else will want to be keep protected. What was interesting, though, is that as Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, has said that order should be restored in the region. But um, Yevgeny Prigozhin of the head of the Wagner um, 
group of um, mercenary soldiers, and he hailed the coup as a liberation from Niger's Western colonizers, so he's still kind of stirring the pot there. I wonder how soon before Wagner is, is very much in, involved there. Um, mm-hmm. what, what, what I also find interesting, I think Niger is responsible for something like 7.5% of the world's uh, stores of, of uranium, so I mean, strategically very, very important uh, for, for nuclear power. Uh, and the fact that there are already soldiers, Western soldiers, in there, uh, they're battling insurgents. They're they're, they're um, uh, having uh, Islamist insurgents, that is, uh, and and there are various people there in technical uh, uh, jobs uh, helping. There's a lot of aid going in. Uh, so I think this is one coup that that really the Western world is going to sit up and take a lot of notice of. Oh, definitely. Um, uh, it was Macron has said the coup is an illegitimate and potentially dangerous. Um, and there could be a withdrawal of U.S. aid because, of course, uh, um, under U.S. law, the Americans will not, you know, help a regime that has where the leader has been disposed by a coup. Um, and there's also been talks of sanctions by the EU and France and other nations. Um, so this could be quite damaging for um, the population in Niger, certainly. Mm. Uh, I think after that, we need a good cool dip a time to to um just just to take the temperature down so monocle's latest book is swim and sun a monocle guide to the world's greatest pools beach clubs and secret lakeside outposts it's already flying off the shelves uh, and the guide celebrates the world of swimming and this week we're highlighting some of the essays that you can find inside so today monocle's culture editor chiara ramella guides us through italian beach club culture A common misconception about Italians sees them as passionate, sometimes chaotic people who behave instinctively, led by their emotions. Those who believe in such a characterization have clearly never been to a bagno, one of the thousands of beach clubs that line the country's coast in August. Life in Italy is, in fact, governed by hundreds of unspoken and often inflexible behavioural rules that range from when it is appropriate to have a cappuccino, only ever in the morning, to how late you can be for a university lecture, which goes for the professor too. Nowhere is this concentration of rules more evident than at the bagno. Beach life in Italy isn't about carefree relaxation, it's a seasonal adjustment of everyday lives. In short, people don't leave their usual selves behind when they go on holiday, they simply transition into their summer personalities. You may be surrounded by a different cast, but you still come with a reputation to uphold. In a strictly Foucauldian sense, a bagno is a power structure. You need only look at the neat arrangement of sun loungers and umbrellas to understand that a hierarchical system is at play. Many of the postazioni, the stations comprising two beds and an umbrella, have historically been assigned on a seasonal basis, meaning they have belonged to the same family for June, July and August at a small fortune for years. Nowadays, working habits have shifted and people no longer have months to spend away from their desks, but the way desirable spots at a bagno are assigned still depends on assiduity and faithfulness to the establishment. The closer to the sea or to the grid's edges, the better. Crucially, many would never dream of changing which bagno they pick. That kind of treason wouldn't go unnoticed. Of course, traditions are becoming more tenuous than they used to be in the bagno's 1960s heyday. 
Despite being born in the 19th century as bathing spots for the aristocracy, the concept came into its own when the country was emerging, smiling and covered in sun cream from the rubble of the Second World War. Back then, beach culture was entirely homegrown because most people couldn't afford to go any further than the closest patch of water to their city apartments and would load up their Fiat Cinquecentos with all the necessary tools for a time in the sun. Today, there are plenty of 20 and 30-somethings who no longer want to spend their entire summers on the Ligurian littoral and who pine for Mykonos instead. But the power of childhood memories still has an impressive hold on most minds, which is why the appeal of a proper vacanza is hard to turn down. And so the custom continues to be faithfully passed down through generations. But back to the rules. Here's a helpful guide to surviving a summer at the bagno. 1. Keep your friends close. Heading to the same spot every year means, by extension, that the people around you will also return every summer. This creates temporary communities with well-defined roles, but also a potential for occasional surprises if fortunes or looks should dramatically change year on year. These are, of course, a hotbed of recurring teenage infatuations, but also a chance for grown-ups to mix, make social comparisons and occasionally forge genuine friendships. The right level of involvement, or perhaps ignoring, of your umbrella neighbours is an art that's perfected over the years. Too much conversation and you'll come off as nosy, not enough and you'll be branded as conceited. 2. Come prepared. It is perfectly acceptable, if not encouraged, to bring your own packed lunch to the beach. It denotes preparedness and unwillingness to be swindled by the system, which is an Italian's utmost source of pride. Everybody knows the beach restaurant salads will be overpriced and unlikely to be as good as anything homemade, although the rule does come undone in the presence of a good fritto misto. In fact, the more elaborate, the better. Cold pasta is ideal, accompanied by fresh fruit. Meager sandwiches are unlikely to get you anywhere. Slices of coconut may be purchased from the men shouting cocobello and selling bucketfuls while walking up and down the beach, but only a couple of times per week as a gesture of goodwill for the local economy. Most people will be encouraged to consume their beverage and leave space for other customers, but no one should even think about suggesting the group of over 80s engaged in a long game of cards should be moved along. They've probably been coming here since before you were born. Until you've taken your position under the umbrella, it is preferable to wear an outfit that covers chest and bum. For the women, that's often a so-called copricostume, a swimsuit cover, a frilly beach dress that only sees the light of day in the months of July and August, emerging from the dark recesses of a wardrobe. Visits to the beachside restaurant don't necessarily require full redressing, but some degree of effort is recommended. Even donning one extra item of clothing will be appreciated. 4. The daily programme. As for activities, these can involve occasional games of paddle tennis by the Banya Shuga, the water's edge, or a very special spin on a branded pedalo. However, days should mainly consist of lying in the sun, reading or filling in crosswords. Hyperactivity will not be tolerated, not within the forest of sun umbrellas at least. And finally, songs. It is likely the Banya will be playing one of the nation's radio stations, blaring out the season's hits whether you like it or not. It is pointless to resist this in search of a moment of silence. Embrace the chance to witness the annals of music history being written and be thankful that your neighbour isn't playing their favourite track, the tinny tune blaring out of the phone speakers. After all, these summertime songs are called tormentoni, tormentors, for a reason. Whoever said beach life was just about enjoyment anyway?
Monocle's culture editor Chiara Romella there and the book Swim and Sun is available now. Uh, Beach clubs? Yes? No? Do you like them? Do you go? Um, Occasionally, yeah. It is nice sometimes. I I do like a bit of an active holiday, but then sometimes you just think, oh my goodness, I've been working too hard. Lie down for a few days on the beach with a good book or or a crossword. Yes, definitely. I I have to say that beach clubs are the only way that I do go to the beach because I I, am... I need a certain degree of comfort. <laughs> I'm not very good at just sort of lying on lying on the sand somewhere. So for yeah. me, the perfect place is uh, Forte del Mami in uh, oh, Tuscany. Yeah, and there's some fabulous beach clubs there. I like uh, Dalmazia uh, oh. is, is, a, is a lovely one. There's one I haven't been to and I really want to go. It's mm. called uh, Alpamare and it's um, it's owned by the Bocelli family of the of singer uh, Andrea Bocelli oh, yeah. fame. Yeah. Uh, and um, that's got a sort of personalised concierge service but sort of 24 oh, wow. hours a day and it just sounds amazing so I may have to I may have to be slightly disloyal to my existing beach club <laughs> and move on. your friends will miss you there <laughs> um, now talking about friends uh, they used to be friends they're not friends anymore this is Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. Uh, they both appeared at the same event uh, uh, yesterday. Uh, they've been um, Trump's been slagging off DeSantis. Uh, DeSantis actually has not been saying much about Trump. Uh, big stories though today um, about uh, DeSantis and his education policy. This is from the New York Times. Tell us more about this. Yeah. Well, uh, um, DeSantis is, is the uh, governor of Florida, of course, and his uh, he has signed off on the Florida's new standards for. Um, African-American history then, and middle schoolers in this will be taught that, quote, slaves develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit, which is, which is quite uh, an astonishing way of looking at um, of the history of slavery. And of course, this has caused a huge uh, backlash across America. Um, you know, obviously from uh, from black communities and from Democrats, but he's also come under fire from his own party and and many in his party, and especially many black Republicans, such as um, one of his close rivals in the um, race um, for the presidential nomination, Tim Scott, who is the senator of South Carolina. And he he was you know obviously pointed out that slavery is not of you know of about upskilling people, but is about it's about separating families, mutilating humans, and even raping their wives. It was just devastating. He said, and he would have, of course hope that any American would know that, and certainly one who was running for the presidency. Now, DeSantis is shot back at Tim Scott, saying that he he was among well, he didn't name Scott in this, but he said that the, the chorus of, of of people against him were just accepting false narratives of the left. But um, DeSantis's and his kind of war on woke has is is not really winning him any friends. He's still a good twenty points behind Trump in the poll, who doesn't really get in, hasn't been involved in, in the same way as him, and um, big money backers such as Ken Griffin, um, who's uh, the hedge fund boss for Citadel, and Nelson Peltz, um, another very uh, rich billionaire American. So they're very concerned about these policies, and because obviously they don't want to be tainted by that kind of thing. So it, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it does seem in some ways that, that DeSantis is taking all this a bit too far. Yeah, you mentioned Peltz there. And of course, he is now the father-in-law of, I forget which Beckham. 
I think I believe it's um, Brooklyn Beckham. <laughs> um, yes, so <laughs> Brooklyn Beckham, who is the son of Victoria. What was her Vic- maiden name? I, mean, um, I can't uh, remember now. But anyway, Victoria Posh Beckham. Spice. Yes, it? it was Posh Spice and David Beckham, who was, of course, the owner of the new uh, Miami football team, um, where, where Lionel Messi is playing. So right, so it's all going on in Florida. <laughs> it's all going on in Florida. Well, speaking of the Spice Girls, uh, when I was uh, of the age where you just love groups like that or love singers and get weepy about them and want to pay as much as you possibly can to go to a concert. The Spice Girls were the ones that sort of dominated my generation. Now, of course, it's Taylor Swift. Yes. Um, she She's um, embarked on this um, huge um, um, The Eras tour, as she's calling it. And it was it made such a, a, a big noise in Seattle. There was what they've called the Swift Quake. Um, she was at Lumen Field in downtown Seattle on um, on Thursday, and the jumping and shouting and screaming over 70,000 fans at the concert caused the seismic equivalent of a magnitude 2.3 earthquake. And um, the, the Lumen Field is home to um, the Seattle Seahawks of the NFL, the American football team, um, Gridiron. And they had known previously what was called a beast quake because they had a player called Marshawn Lynch. And in 2011, his, his antics, he was, he was a fantastic running back, created a lot of um, uh, 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 touchdowns um, and scored a lot. It was known as beast mode. And the fans cheered so much when they caused a beast quake. But Taylor Swift fans caused double the movement of that. And there was a, and there was a, it was measured to be a maximum ground acceleration of about 0.011 meters per second squared, which I don't know how much that is, but it's quite worrying because, of course, um, Seattle is on San Andreas Fault and all along that western coastline. So you probably don't want to be jumping up and down too much. No, and I, I gather, because I know nothing about Taylor Swift, forgive me, but one of her songs is called Shake It Up. Shake it off, yeah. Shake it off. Shake it off. Yeah, that is what it, that is one of her biggest hits. So, yeah. But I mean, we're increasingly seeing this. It was Beyonce who ch- changed the entire economy of a town by people just flocking in, buying tickets, booking up hotels, going to restaurants. I mean, the pulling power of of these people is absolutely extraordinary. It it is. Uh, yeah, I think it's probably not airlines and big spenders that are that are keeping the economy alive globally. It's Beyonce and Taylor Swift. Taylor <laughs> Swift herself is is supposed to be uh, to make a billion dollars from this tour, um, and she was in Santa Clara, California, um, last night, and tickets were selling for on on secondary sites for upwards of twenty thousand dollars. She's got a six night stand at the SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles uh, coming up next week, and uh, it, it is quite incredible. And then she's still jetting around the, the world after that. So. It is, she is a, yeah, a cultural tour de force, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Kylie Minogue's just announced that she'll have a residency in Vegas, um, which I think is really interesting because although she's absolutely huge in most of the world, slightly less well-selling in America. And I think this is a move to, A, make some dosh because that's why artists do a, a Vegas residency, mm-hmm. but B, just get her better known that side of the Atlantic. Oh, certainly, and I guess it's easier than touring as well. You can stay at the same place for because yeah. Celine Dion. That's what they uh, she personally uh, rejuvenated um, uh, the Vegas by by doing a, a residency there, and so many fans kind of flocking to see her. And then you know Adele, that was she had some issues with it, but I think is she there now um, singing away? So yeah. Um, yeah, who would you who would you cross oceans to see? Who would I see? Well, I've, I must see. I've saw 
Blur um, this week play their new album at the Hammersmith um, Apollo, and it, it is the new album is quite fantastic, and and it's amazing how um, I, I'd actually never saw them live in their heyday, but of course was a fan way back in the '90s, and um, they sound absolutely fantastic, and I've seen them twice so far this year, and um, I would I would go see them again. So a big gig goer. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, that's one of the one of the benefits of you when living somewhere like in London. You can get out and see bands quite all quite often. Yeah, yeah. Rather like my attitude to beaches. I won't go unless I'm behind the velvet rope, <laughs> 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 which somewhat limits my choices. I have to say. <laughs> but when you can see them on, you know, television, well, whatever. Yeah, it's not it's not quite the same thing, Georgina. It's not quite the same thing. Okay, I'm deeply uncool. I think we'll leave it there. <laughs> Paul, thank you very much indeed. That's Paul Rhodes, uh, and he is with Newsweek. And that's all for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer in London, that's Tamsin Howard and Mariella Bevan for her editing assistance. Our producer is Isabella Jewell, and uh, my guest there was uh, Paul Rhodes. Uh, Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening.